Amen. Good morning. It's good to see everybody here this morning, um, and it's good to be with you. A few weeks ago, just kind of give you a little introduction just to catch you up. Uh, we started a series called Power to Follow, and in this series, we've been looking at the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the one who actually gives us the power to be Christians and to follow Jesus. And we started off really simple, just asking, who is the Holy Spirit? And then the second week, last week, um, I tried to answer this question, what does the Holy Spirit do? Because there's a little bit of confusion uh, about that. And so um, we kind of went into detail about what the Holy Spirit does. And the the title of today's message is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I believe that's one of the primary messages of Pentecost. And so we're going to take a look at that. And Um, This text that I'm about to read out of, I I really believe, needs very little introduction. Uh, Most people are pretty interested in this text, uh, even if you're not a Christian because of the things that are going on uh, in this text. Uh, In these few verses that I'm about to read you, uh, what you'll discover is a strong wind enters a room um, as the power of God that is filled with about 120 people. Uh, This word um, called... The tongues comes up in it, uh, fire is mentioned in it, and then at the end of it all, I actually left this out, um, but it's there, it's actually the next verse that I left out, the people are accused of being drunk. Uh, so uh, that's the best I got for you. If you're not interested in this, um, you're probably just not interested in very many of the other scriptures either, because it's, it's very interesting, it just kind of draws you, you kind of wonder what in the world is going on here. And so if you've got your Bibles or your sermon notes, which are in your worship folders there, you can get those out and you can follow along. But we're going to be looking at Acts 2, 1 through 6, and then verses 11 through 12. And I'll kind of explain a little bit of this as we go through. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived. Uh, Today is Pentecost, by the way. Uh, Today is 50 days after Easter, which marks Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost for the Jewish people, um, for the people who were up in this room, marked 50 days after the Passover. The Passover was the time when the Jewish people had celebrated uh, God passing over the Hebrew people um, and freeing them from Egypt. The way this was done is that the Hebrew people slaughtered a lamb and they put it on their doorpost. And basically, like the spirit of death passed over all the Hebrew people um, and free, allowed them to be freed from Egypt. And so everybody who had slaughtered the lamb put the blood of the doorpost on their doors where their firstborns were saved from this death that took place among the Egyptian firstborns. Now, if we were to put this in the Christian context, what we know about Jesus is that Jesus was put on the cross on Passover, and he becomes our sacrificial lamb on that day. And so as we look forward to Pentecost here, which basically penta, by the way, penta means five, like costa or costal um, there. It just means, it means times 10. And so it's 50 there. It's not really any scary thing. It's really a simple thing. And so you have, you have the Passover and then 50 days after the Passover, you have this celebration called Pentecost. Pentecost in the Jewish tradition was basically known as the Feast of Weeks or Shavuot. During this celebration, what the Jewish people would celebrate and remember was God. And this is really important, by the way. You're going to want to know this for later on in the message. What the people were celebrating was God coming to Mount Sinai and giving them the law. In other words, giving them the Ten Commandments. 
They were remembering this during that time as they kind of celebrated um, a harvest and a, a time of feast and festival uh, celebration here. And so this is kind of what's going on at Pentecost. These are why all these people are in Jerusalem during this time. And so that's, that's why it's important that we know what Pentecost is, or that's kind of what it is, and that's important for you to know. And so all of these people are together in one place, as I continue in verse 1, verse 2, and then suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided as tongues or divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Both Jews and proselytes Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own languages, tongues, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? So they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and then they asked this question, what does this mean? Now, there's a challenge in preaching this text because we all kind of come from different backgrounds and different places, don't we? And so we all probably have a little kind of different ideas of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And even as I have come to this text and this series, one of the things that I'm, I'm kind of not concerned about, just aware of, that we all come from different places. And those of you who know me know that, like, I, I, I'm not real concerned with trying to convert you uh, to be Church of God people. That's the tradition that we are established with. But my goal is simply to convert you to Christ and express that in a biblical manner as we come to the scriptures together and try to follow him together. And so I just want us to be biblical Christians who love and follow Christ and use the text as our, our guiding uh, principle as we follow Christ. So here's just a quick question for some of you because I'm curious about this. How many of you were raised Baptist? Anybody raised Baptist in here? Okay, a few hands go up. What about Pentecostal? Who was raised Pentecostal? Okay, one or two of you might have been raised Pentecostal. Presbyterian? Anybody? A few of you raised Presbyterian. Catholic? All right, a few of you raised Catholic. Catholic? Lutheran. I know we have a couple Lutherans in here. Okay, all right. Who was raised in the Church of God in a movement or a congregation like this one? And who's just a plain old sinner, right? <laughs> yeah, okay. All right, yeah, there, good. Some of you are being honest, all right? I shared this with some of you at the serve team party, but um, I find it funny, so I'm going to serve it again, tell it again, because some of you haven't heard this, and it's basically, how many people does it take to change a light bulb? And it asks, how many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? Change. Who wants change? How many Pentecostals does it take to change a light bulb? Ten. One to change the light bulb, and nine to pray out the spirit of darkness. Some of you get that, right? How many Catholics does it change to take to change a light bulb? They don't need light bulbs. They use candles. This is actually my favorite. How many TV evangelists does it take to change a light bulb? One. But for the message of light to continue, send in your donation now. <laughs> How many Amish does it take to change a light bulb? All right, what's a light bulb? 
How many Church of God people does it take to change a light bulb? Ten. One to change it, and nine others to talk about how much they like the old light bulb. <laughs> how, will we get, how, many lawyers, how many lawyers does it take to change a light bulb? It depends. How much money do you have? <laughs> how many chiropractors does it take to change a light bulb? One. But come back in four weeks to make sure it's still on. <laughs> yeah, that's funny for some of you. All right. Those are funny. Those are funny. Now, one of the things that I'm sure about the Holy Spirit and what I believe uh, about the Holy Spirit in our life is, lives is that he's meant to be experienced. And so if you're here week one, that's kind of how I kind of just set down on the Holy Spirit, is that the Holy Spirit is the expression, really, of your personal relationship with God. He's his own person that, we, that is meant to be experienced as we follow the Lord. And I'm just going to do a little bit of stereotyping here, right? But these are, these are stereotypes that I've gotten from the people within these traditions and kind of listening to them, right? If you were raised Baptist, perhaps the Holy Spirit was there when you were saved, right? He brought you to the moment of salvation. But after that, you know, you probably just kind of, he was just kind of talked about like as the crazy uncle that nobody really wanted around um, and nobody talked about. And so you kind of just, hey, let's, let's stay away from the Holy Spirit. If you were raised Pentecostal, on the other hand, right, you embrace the crazy uncle. Like if something spontaneous didn't happen during the service, uh, the Holy Spirit just, just wasn't there. If you were raised in our tradition, maybe the Church of God, the Holy Spirit did primarily two things. Um, he inspired you to be holy, and he made sure you didn't have any fun. <laughs> so I'm going to give you three experiences that I believe I see taking place here um, within Pentecost. That, that I just want us to respond to and learn from and to be open to. And the first one is this. It's the indwelling. If you're taking notes, it's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, right? And this happens as, as we are saved. This happens in the moment of salvation. This happens when we are saved from sin. Uh, this question was asked at the end of the text that I read, what does this mean? Like as the Holy Spirit comes down on these people, what does this mean? And Peter and the people, they're actually accused of being drunk. And Peter says, no, we're not drunk, and let me tell you what it means. And so what Peter then begins to tell the people there, um, he, he says, this is the advent of God. The, the Messiah has come. And one of the things that God promised to do when he sent to the Messiah is send the Holy Spirit down. And, and here's how it took place. God came in the form of Christ, lived a perfect life, and he died for our sins, and we're the ones who killed him, and we're the ones who are guilty be be before God. And then he tells them, he, he says the Holy Spirit is here, and he's making this, he's, he's making Jesus a reality in, in your life, and a reality that you need. He says you need to be forgiven for sins. And Jesus died for your sins as, Je as Jesus went to the cross, and that you must be saved. And so when we look at the experience of the Holy Spirit, the thing that we must do as we experience the Holy Spirit in our lives is we must respond to him. And Peter said these people are just responding to the Holy Spirit. And you need to respond to the Holy Spirit too. And so where does that start? And where does that begin for each one of us? And it's at the moment that you repent. Peter here, he's going to tell everybody that they're going to need to repent and be baptized. Let me show you what I mean here. They ask, Peter, after a sermon, what do we do? And Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. Right? The truth is, if you've never experienced the Holy Spirit at work in your life, you've never done this. This is always the first step to experience the Holy Spirit, is repenting for your sins and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? The truth is, is that we cannot save ourselves, is that we cannot do enough good works. There's nothing we can do to be saved. There's nothing we can do to inherit eternal life. What we have to do is we have to turn to God. And that's the basic meaning of repentance, is that you are ready to turn to God. Repentance just means turning around here. Now there's a sense in repentance that you are actually sorrowful for not following the Lord, and you believe that you need him. And so our, our lives, our lives in the Spirit, always been, begin with understanding this. And so that's the first way we respond. The be baptized part is always the outward expression of the inward work. That I know I'm a sinner who needs forgiven, and so I'm going to be baptized. And I'm going to express my receiving of the salvation at the prompting of the Holy Spirit to follow the Lord. And so that's what's going on at Pentecost, and that's the very first thing that Peter wants everybody to do as they understand the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Now, what's important for us to know, and why I say that this always is the beginning of the Holy Spirit experience in our lives, is because you cannot do this without the Holy Spirit prompting you to do that. No one repents and declares Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit prompting them to do so. And so here's what I want you to know, right? If you have never come to Christ, if you have never decided to turn from your sin and to turn from Christ, and you believe today is the day, that's, that's, not, just, that's just not you talking to yourself, but that is the Holy Spirit declaring that today is the day that you are going to decide to follow the Lord. And you can either open yourself up to the Holy Spirit or you can push him away, you can grieve him, you can turn from him. Now, this is important not only for those of you who have never decided to follow Jesus Christ, but this is important for you to know uh, for those of you who have follow, followed Jesus. Right? I, I've given you this, this passage here, this text here out of 1 Corinthians 12, 3, and it says, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God can say Jesus is Lord except through the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a reason I want you to know this. Right? You didn't come to faith through your own power. The Spirit of God in you helped make that decision for you and prompted you to make that decision. Therefore, the Spirit of God indwells in you. You get that. Like God's Spirit is living in you. I gave you this next verse because I just want to show you that He didn't like bring you to salvation and just leave you to yourself. Like He didn't motivate you to make the choice to follow Jesus and, and then just leave. Uh, John 14, 16 says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. That's another name for the Spirit. It's the paraclete. We went over that last week. To be with you how long, church? Forever. Forever. Right? So the Spirit isn't like doing a drive-by in your life. He doesn't bring you to salvation and then leave you to your, to, to your own. But the Spirit brings you to Christ and then he's living within you and he's there, and he's among you, and he's speaking to you. You have the Holy Spirit, like you possess the Holy Spirit in your life. 
And, and so you just need to know right now, right, that the first experience comes with salvation, but the experience that you have in your life is actually, on an ongoing basis, is, is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You are never alone and that God is always with you. Now, the second experience that I want to talk about when it comes to the Holy Spirit that I also believe that we see in the first couple chapters of Acts and at Pentecost is the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Now, we use this word in our own tradition, and most traditions talk about this in some sort of way, but the fullness of the Holy Spirit is kind of experienced through this idea of sanctification. And as I talk about this, here's the one thing I kind of want you to know or to think about it in this way, is that you can be indwelled with the Holy Spirit, right? In other words, you can possess the Holy Spirit but not be possessed by Him, right? Uh, and my goal for you this morning, right, if, if you don't feel like you're living a Spirit-filled life, and if you don't believe that you're living out of the fullness of the Spirit, right, and that you just possess the Holy Spirit, and you're not possessed by Him, I hope that you will get to that point and you'll make the decision to be possessed by Him, to be full of Him. John talks about it this way. He wants you to abide in the Spirit, right? Uh, some traditions talk about it this way, that they want you to be baptized in the Spirit, right? And so where did they get this from? Where do we get this from? Well, I, I want to show you here in Acts 1, 4 through 5. Now, this is before Pentecost, and, and Jesus is telling his disciples, he says, I'm about to ascend and go into heaven, and here's what I want you to do. He says, I want to want you to stay here in Jerusalem, and here's what's going to happen. He says, and then while staying with them, this is Jesus, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, if you had taken notes or have your Bible, um, and don't watch the screen because our uh, technology is shutting down right now, um, cast the spirit of darkness out of it, um, but here's circle baptism. What, is, what does baptism mean? It, it's, it's, in the Greek, it means to be immersed. It, it means to be immersed. In other words, it, it, it means to be taken fully underwater and to be surrounded by the water. It's this idea that you are surrounded by whatever you're immersed in. And so like if you're doing a water baptism, what it means is really to feel the full wet of the water. This is one of the reasons, too, that we baptize Believers, every time in the Bible somebody comes to faith, what we see is people getting baptized after they come to faith in Christ. And so that's why we do, why we do that. But further here, what does it mean to be baptized by the Holy Spirit here? Well, John the Baptist um, and Jesus somewhat explained this and kind of let me show you because this was predicted that this would happen as well. And so... Matthew 3.11, and this is before this time in Acts, um, John is explaining to everybody as he's baptizing them in the water, he says, I will baptize you with water for repentance. And so this is really interesting here. John says, hey, you know, as you come to faith, like you're going to need to repent, right? The kind of the first experience that we see there of receiving the Holy Spirit and salvation. And then he says, but he who comes after me, in other words, Jesus who comes after me, who's mightier than I and better than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now that's 
if you're just reading through that in Matthew, you're going, what in the world is he talking about? Because we don't really see that anywhere else in Matthew's gospel. We don't see anybody being really baptized in the Holy Spirit or with fire. Well, I want to take a look at the idea here of fire. Now, Jesus isn't going to baptize you with literal flames, is he? That's, that's, that's not what he's talking about. Like, Jesus isn't taking a flamethrower to you um, when he gets to you, and neither is the Holy Spirit. Right? What they're trying to describe is an experience that will take place when you are baptized in, into Christ. And they know uh, that these people that they're talking to, they know the Old Testament. So what does fire represent in the Old Testament? It represents primarily two things. The first thing that fire represents is the guiding presence of God. The guiding presence of God. We know this when Jesus, or when Jesus, excuse me, when Moses approaches the burning bush in Exodus 3. Who's he in the presence of? God, right? This, this bush that's on fire, but it doesn't burn up. Moses is in the presence of God, and Moses is going to be the one that God uses to lead the people out of Egypt. And how do the people know where they're going as they leave Egypt? A pillar of fire. God is with them as he's leading them out of Egypt. Now, where's the first place they're going as they leave leave Egypt? Does anybody know this? They're heading to Mount Sinai. And why are they heading to Mount Sinai? They're heading to Mount Sinai so that they can receive the law. What happens as they get to Mount Sinai? Fire comes down on Mount Sinai there. They, they see flames of fire come down on Mount Sinai. Now, why are flames of fire now coming down on Mount Sinai? Because God needs to give them the law before they go into the land so they know how to live in the land. And so what does the law represent then as the flames come down on Mount Sinai? Not just God's presence and guiding presence, but God's holiness. God's holiness, then, is to bring about our sanctification. In other words, right, God's holiness, as he gives the law to the people, are to change their ways so that they know how to be God's people. So here's what I want you to see here, is that God saves them from Egypt, and then they go on a journey as they're following God, and they're in the midst of the presence of God, and yet it seems like just them getting out of Egypt and going in the land would be enough, right? Like they, they should just be saved and get to go into the land. So why does God make them stop at Sinai? Here's one of the things that, that I believe to be true. Although, right, God had gotten them out of Egypt, the Egypt was still in them. You get that? God had gotten them and saved them out of Egypt, but Egypt was still in them. The practices of the Egyptians, the way the Egyptians thought about the world, the things that the Egyptians did, you just don't leave that behind. And so what was God doing? God had to get them to Sinai to change them. The moment that you repent and receive Christ, you're saved, you're free. Right? There's some Sin habits, there's desires, there's lifestyles, there's thoughts, though, that need to be changed, that need to be burned up. This is what God does at Pentecost. And at Pentecost, God doesn't give you the law. He doesn't give you another set of rules to follow. He doesn't give you the Ten Commandments. He's already done 
all of that, but what God does at Pentecost is that he gives you himself. God gives you himself as the Holy Spirit comes upon his people. And why would God do that? Because he promised to clean people's hearts up. So ultimately, what does this experience look like? As God pours his self out to you, he cleans up your heart. Your desires begin to change. It's not that you become perfect. It's not that you won't sin anymore. It's, it, it's none of that. But what it is, what it is, is that you will desire to follow the Lord above all else. That the Holy Spirit will be God's presence in your life as he leads you in righteousness and holiness and as he changes you and as he purifies your heart. Right? God is the fire inside of you that is burning everything up that doesn't belong there in this process. And this is for you. Right? Now, when I say that these are different experiences of the Holy Spirit, what I believe is that this can happen all at the same time. You, you can come to know Lord and declare, come to know Jesus and declare him as Lord, and you can have this holy experience where you no longer decide that you want to sin at all, and you, you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and your neighbor as yourself. But what I have discovered, and I, I talked to a number of people about this week, and I'm trying to figure this out biblically, like how does this work? Do people have two separate experiences, and is, is, there, is there biblical proof of this? Right. And as I even kind of asked one pastor over and over again, like, what was this like for you? And he kind of went back and forth, and he's like, yeah, I guess I had that experience. I came to know Christ. I was living for myself, really successful, and all these sorts of things, and then finally Christ got a hold of me, and all I wanted to do was follow him, and Christ cleaned out my heart. Christ cleaned up my life, and this is what I want for all of you. This is what I want for us, right? Because this, this is the fullness of your salvation here. And, and so how do you experience it? Now, I believe the Holy Spirit brings you to make this decision, but here's what you need to do. You've got to keep yourself pure. You've got to keep yourself pure. And in 2 Timothy 2, 21, it says, if you keep yourself pure, you'll be a special utensil for honorable use. Your life will be clean, and you'll be ready for the Master to use. The Master will use you for every good work. Now, we see this taking place here at Pentecost. As fire comes upon each individual, what is happening there? Each individual is being controlled by the Holy Spirit and speaking on behalf of the Holy Spirit. They aren't, they aren't doing stuff that, that they don't want to do, but rather they're doing the very thing that they want to do, which is speak on God's behalf as they speak about the mighty works of God. And so in other words, they are being possessed by God for the purposes of God. And I believe that every Christian wants that. I believe that every Christian wants that. I'm just going to caution you right now. Like if you're thinking about coming to know Jesus as Lord and you've never done that before, right? It, it'll bother you, right, to say yes to Jesus and be baptized and yet not follow him. Like, and so in other words, it'll bother you to, to, re, to ask Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and receive that and, and yet for your life not to line up with that. You know, psychologists call this just cognitive dissonance. Like, you know who you should be and what you should be doing and yet your life doesn't line up with it, and, and, so, and so you're torn, and you don't know what to do, and it can make you pretty miserable, actually, because it's like living a, a godly life. And one of the things that keeps us 
from allowing all of these things to take place is that we have filled our lives with things that don't belong and that actually grieve the Holy Spirit. I don't believe that you can ever completely push the Holy Spirit out of your life, but one of the things that you can do is just fill up your life with things that will keep the fullness of the Holy Spirit from being there, right? In the scriptures, we, we see that this is called grieving the Holy Spirit. And so I kind of asked you these questions last week, but they are things that we need to call, co- contemplate. What needs to go? Right? What needs to go in your life? Or let me ask it this way. What's the one thing, like, if somebody else saw you doing on a regular basis uh, that would ruin your witness? These things are probably keeping you from this experience. Second thing that you need to do if you want to experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit in your life is dedicate everything in your life to God. Dedicate everything in your life to God. When nothing is withheld from God, you're ready to experience God in your life. Uh, old preachers used to say, if, it, if, if Jesus isn't Lord of all, right, he's not Lord at all. So, so what doesn't belong to Jesus? Romans 1 or 12, 1 says this, Therefore, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What Paul is asking us here to do is to present our, our lives as a sacrifice to God. He says, you are a living sacrifice. Everything in your life belongs to God. And so Paul is challenging the people, after he explains what it means to be saved, Give everything to God, including your life. It reminds me of the story of the boy um, who got his hand stuck in the glass jar, and he's screaming for help. And he's saying, Daddy, Daddy, come help me, come help me. And his dad shows up, and he sees the boy's hand is stuck in the jar, and dad begins to try to pull the jar um, off of the boy's hand, and the boy just keeps his fist shut. And so the father finally tells him, he says, open your hand, like, you know, do this. And and the boy says, no, Daddy, I, I can't. And he says, son, why won't you open your hand? He says, because I'll drop my dime. Right? What are you holding on to? What are you holding on to? What are you not ready to give up? And some of you, it actually might be a dime, right? Some, some of you aren't ready for your finances to really belong to the Lord. For some, right, it might be your thought life or what you look at on a regular basis. Uh, For some, it might be your family. You're not really ready to trust your Lord, the Lord with your family. For some, right, it might be worship. It might be worship in Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. Um, I left this out of the text, but it it says, it it says, um, be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a command, by the way. It's an imperative. So all people should be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say, he says, don't be drunk with wine. In other words, like when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it doesn't mean that you're mindless. Um, and another thing to kind of think about, right? Like if we're not experiencing the Holy Spirit, we will go look for other experiences in our life. He says, don't get drunk on wine. But then he says, instead, he said, sing songs. He said, sing songs, spiritual songs, and hymns. Instead, worship is what he says. He says, be filled with the Holy Spirit and worship. And then he says basically kind of three different types of, of songs there. Some of you, right, I'm just going to encourage you just to worship the Lord. And not just worship the Lord because it, 
because you like the songs, but worship the Lord because that's what we're created to do. I was, had a conversation with somebody a while back, and I've had numbers of these conversations, um, but it basically goes like this. Uh, Josh, I don't like that song um, or the songs that we're singing. Uh, you know, what do you think about it? And sometimes I'll just tell them, yeah, I don't really like the song either. Um, and sometimes it's true. Like, I don't really like the melody of the song, um, but, I, but one of the things that I always try to remind people of is that it's not about me. Like, I, I've never come to church to sing a song where, like, I'm worshiping myself. Like, it it's always, it's always needs to be directed by, towards God. And I always kind of get that, like, oh, I guess that's, that's right, right? Like, our worship should be directed towards God. Now, why is this important for us to worship the Lord? Because you need it, right? Some of you, I just want to encourage you to kind of maybe even just come out of your shell a little bit, right? And, and I'm not equating, right, like emotional crazy worship with spiritualism. Emotionalism isn't spiritualism. But one of the things that I do want you to get, get you to see here is that at Pentecost, they were accused of being drunk, right? Why? I, you, you're smart. You can figure that out, right? Uh, one of the things that Paul says is don't get drunk, but rather just be filled with the Spirit and worship. A few weeks ago, I was talking to a, a few guys, um, and they uh, were talking about kind of the hand-raising sort of thing during worship or whatever, and, and all these guys were kind of reserved, and one of them said, yeah, every once in a while, I'll put my hand up, and he said, it, it, it does kind of feel good. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's, that's interesting, and, and I said, well, why do you think that is? And he goes, I, I don't know. I guess I'm just opening up myself up to the Holy Spirit, and I said, well, you, you, you are. Um, do you know what this means? Surrender, right? This means surrender. Now, whether you do this or not, I'm not saying that you haven't or have surrendered to Jesus. Like, just because you're waving your hands in the air doesn't mean that you know the Lord or that you're full of the Holy Spirit. I'm just telling you it's okay, right? I'm just telling you this is the way to just say, like, hey, I'm open to what you have for me. Like, I'm, I'm ready to be full. Like, I belong to you. Like, my life belongs to you. And, and that's, that's okay, and it's a good thing. There's a reason this young man felt good about this. It's because he belongs to God. And he was showing that physically. You belong to God. Right? And if you haven't dedicated everything in, in your life to the Lord, you need to do that. So the first experience is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The second is the fullness of the Holy Spirit. These two are kind of for you, right? These two are kind of about your redemption. The third experience that I see here, and this is primarily for other people, as we look at Pentecost, is a special feeling. It's a special feeling of the Holy Spirit. I would describe this as revival, that people get to experience, sometimes on a personal level, but really typically it happens on a corporal level, and it happens for other people. Revival can maybe be explained like this. Revival are special moments brought about by the Holy Spirit for special times, for special tasks. Some of you have heard of awakenings. Um, maybe you've heard of the Great Awakening. Has anybody heard of the Great Awakening or Great Awakenings? All right, a few of you have. So if you've read through your history books, what you'll discover um, is that in our own history and even in the history of the West in general, we've had these awakenings where the Spirit of God seems to de- descend on people. 
And as the Spirit of God descends on kind of a country, a place, a people, right, more and more people come to know the Lord and respond to the Lord and respond to preaching and rush into churches, and usually change starts to happen. Many people actually believe some really false things about our own country. Many people believe that this country was just founded by a bunch of Puritans um, that were seeking religious freedom. That is only partially true, all right? Most of the people in our country did not come seeking religious freedom. A lot of them came because they were rebels, and Britain and other countries didn't want them there, or they didn't have the means to survive in the countries that they were at, and so they left. And so the original 13 colonies had a lot of criminals, a lot of crooks. Um, a A majority of the people were not following the Lord before the American Revolution. And so what happens in the early 1700s um, to mid-1700s is an awakening awakening actually starts over in Britain and kind of makes its way over to here. And that church attendance becomes a little greater and people come to know the Lord. And typically what happens after awakenings then are social changes. So what happens then after the first great awakening, after all these people responding to preaching and kind of entering into churches is actually the American Revolution. Second Great Awakening comes about 100 years later. And what happens about 100 years later is a similar thing. People have fallen away from the Lord and people aren't following the Lord and and churches are coming together and they're preaching the gospel and people are responding to the gospel in the 1800s and about the mid-1800s, what social issue comes up? Emancipation, right? Slavery. And so what happens? Uh, Many historians believe that we hit another kind of awakening, maybe early 1900s, late 1800s, uh, during that time, what happens? Uh, child labor laws start to get passed. Women become very, less or more than property. Typically, what happens are churches come together, people begin to spread the gospel, people respond to the gospel. Social change takes place at that point in time as God moves in his people. And so these are special times for special places. Now, why does that happen? Here's, here's the reason why that happens. It's because individual people and individual souls become important during an awakening, during a, re- a revival. So I believe that this is a special feeling, and this is also a revival during this time of Pentecost here, because here's what God is going to do. God is going to start his church in the book of Acts at Pentecost. And the gospel is going to save thousands of souls and thousands of individuals as God starts his church. How do I know this is true? Acts 1.8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so what is the Holy Spirit going to do as he descends on his people? He's going to give them power. What is he going to give them power to do? He's going to give them power to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, this is a really large task, all right, for a bunch of Galileans that have really never left Galilee. If you follow Jesus' ministry, it was pretty in a pretty located area, and the men that were following him didn't go outside of that area much either, and we're from that area. So how in the world is the message of Jesus going to get to the ends of the earth? Pentecost. At Pentecost, what you have is this festival, and you have men and women who have come together to celebrate God from all different countries, are all in one place. And so what is God going to do? He's going to start what he promised here. He's going to send a powerful wind and the Spirit's going to be poured out on these people and they're going to experience something extraordinary, a special filling. How do we know this? Acts 2, 4, and 6. 
and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what they began to do? They began to speak in tongues as the Holy Spirit had given them utterance. Now, here's what some of you have been asking since the beginning. What in the world does Josh believe about tongues? I'm going to tell you what I believe about this text right here, what is happening. If you want to hear more, come back in a couple weeks. I'm going to talk about the gifts of the Spirit. All right. But here's what's going on. Tongues. What does it mean? All right. Two meanings, primarily in the Greek. First, in this, right here, right here. That's what it means. It means a tongue. Second, it just means language. It, it simply can be just, most often is just translated language. Like that's, that's all it means. And so what we're told here is that they're speaking language, the languages of people from other countries. And so what I don't believe is happening here is basically like a kind of mumbling or some type of prayer language in this instance here. Well, Josh, how do you know that? Just keep reading, right? Sometimes your Bible will explain things that people have made complicated. As we keep reading, what we discover here is that each one was hearing what? Each person speak in their own language, right? So if there were a bunch of Hispanic people here today, Right? And this happened, a special feeling for a special moment at a special time. What it might look like is somebody standing up and speaking Spanish or for God being, being able to translate the English into Spanish for them. What's interesting about this is that God is getting through to people that he shouldn't in ways that he shouldn't be able to. Right? And that's really what revival is about. And here's what I know about all of you is that you all have people that you just wish God would get through to. You have people in your life that you know that you wish God would get a hold of. And God can. God can use you to speak to them, to change them. He can get a hold of people and he can speak to people whom he never should or you think never could. Uh, here's what I want you to know, though. Revival typically happens as certain people, as churches, as pastors, as leaders, as congregations, are living lives full of the Holy Spirit. There's an old saying that in Egypt, everybody knows that the Nile is there. But everybody is waiting for its overflow. Here's what I want to challenge you, church, to do. I want to challenge you to be full. And that way, when the Spirit of God pours out on you, people can benefit from your overflow, that people can benefit from our overflow. Locklear and Herbert Locklear, in his book, he basically points out, he says, this is the salvation of the world. As the church receives the Holy Spirit and lives that out and waits on the rain to come and then speaks truth and allows the Holy Spirit to move in people's lives, that people will come to experience God. People will be brought to salvation. And this is, by the way, this is one of the goals of our church. But my goal for you individually right now is for you to live within the power of the Holy Spirit and experience His fullness. So I hope you have come today ready to do that. Here's how I want us to respond. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Um, I want a response today uh, to be very fairly simple. First thing I want you to do, if you have never Right? If you have never repented and believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want you to make that decision today. 
if the Holy Spirit is leading you to make that decision. Don't put it off. If you've never been baptized, I encourage you to be baptized. Second, and some of you, you might be feeling like you're just kind of living kind of a powerless life. There's something in your life, right? You, you haven't given to God. There's something that you continue to do or see or experience that you know is grieving the Holy Spirit. And it's time to just put those aside and to get rid of those, to live a pure and holy life. Make that decision today and ask the Holy Spirit to fill you. Some of you, right, you might just want to pray for revival. Pray for revival in our church, in our place, in our community, in our nation, in the West. Right? Here's what I'm going to ask you to do as you do these. Um, we have a tradition in our church, and you don't have to do this, right? I'm not going to make anybody come forward, um, but we anoint people. The, this is just oil, and oil represents the, the presence of God. The presence of God we know in our lives is the Holy Spirit. So if you want to come forward this morning, what I'll do is I'll anoint you with oil and you can have time of prayer as we sing these last two songs together. And you can pray at the altars, you can go back and pray at your seat and worship, however you'd like to do that. Um, it's not scary. I just put a little bit of oil on your foreheads. Say, I anoint you in the, power, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As so if God is leading you to make a decision today, either to come to Christ to be full of the Spirit or to pray for revival, I'm going to ask that you come forward and I anoint you this morning. So would the worship team come up here and lead us as I do so. Let me pray. Father, this morning we give you thanks because you have sent your Spirit and you are in this place because I know that the believers are here. Your Son Jesus tells us wherever two or three are gathered that I am there with them and we believe that that promise is true. I pray, Father, that no matter what somebody is going through or... Um, where they're at in their life, if they've received you as Savior, that they know that you are with them. I pray for those, Father, who have never received Jesus as Savior and who has welcomed in the Holy Spirit in their life. I pray, Father, right now that they repent and they believe, that they decide to get baptized. Father, I pray that we all get to experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I pray that you bring to mind those things that don't belong in our life so that we can make room for you. I pray, Father, that all of our lives belong to you, everything in it. Father, I pray for revival. I pray for a special feeling, for a special time, for a special moment. I pray that you use us to bring people to Christ because you love them and you want a relationship with them. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.